0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: And Adam walks into a bar. There's actually no one there really, except for the bartender who's cleaning glasses in the corner and the Adam starts looking underneath the tables and the stool. The bartender looks at him and says, can I help you with something? And the Adam says, I was here last night and I lost an electron, I I know I left it here. And the bartender says, are you sure? And the Adam says, I'm positive.
0: I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the show
0: that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from writer Sloan Crosley. That'll break the ice. We'll hear more from her later. Plus, we'll speak with hip hop duo Run the Jewels. Also coming up,
2: graphic novelist Adrian Tomina, novelist novelist Elizabeth Gilbert, mm-hmm. and Pauline Black, who is not a novelist, but is a ska music pioneer.
0: But first, it's a party, you see. So we start with small talk. All week long, you've probably been hearing these headlines.
3: Russia says it launched 20 airstrikes and hit eight
0: ISIS targets in Syria.
4: Congress managed to pass a measure that will keep the government open. The EPA
5: is toughening regulations on ground-level ozone.
2: Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is a contributing editor at The Paris Review, which has its new autumn issue out. Sadie. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
6: Well, I thought I would talk about a story I read in the New York Post about a new phenomenon in New York nightlife, the juice crawl.
0: So this is is something like... (laughs) Is this what I think it is? Yeah, is is it like a pub crawl? It
6: is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) For a price, you gather with a bunch of health-minded revelers and you go on a crawl of New York's juice bars... Yes. Wow.
2: From, from the city that brought you Jackson Pollock <laughs> and
0: Wu-Tang Clan.
6: Crazy. I don't think you know crazy till you have conga line down the street <laughs> drinking wheatgrass shots. The, the
0: first thing that comes to mind is, you know, maybe it's nice for people who are underage or, or perhaps teetotalers, you know, don't want to drink alcohol. That's a nice thing.
6: Sure. You know, they're certainly not hurting anyone. I guess. They're having a lot of fun. They're not just drinking juice. Sometimes they wear headphones and they do kind of a silent disco thing where they all listen to synchronized music and boogie down the street and maybe improving their lifespan in the process. I mean,
0: is it actually healthy to have that much sugar in one night? How much juice are they drinking? Well,
6: I imagine some of the juices are vegetal um, because apparently you drink up to 25 shots. Look, I'm not saying I intend to find out and report back because I won't, but <laughs> you you could certainly do it and um, it would probably be a pretty early night.
2: I thought we had an agreement. <laughs> Healthy people get the daytime, unhealthy people get the nighttime. <laughs> what is so hard about this?
0: <laughs> what is so hard about this? All right, City Stein, thank you so much for the small talk.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: And now just to maintain balance, time for cocktails. <laughs> This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve with it. It's our well-muddled history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week back in 1849, the great gothic horror writer Edgar Allan Poe took his final trip.
2: Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
7: If Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story about his own death, it might have read a lot like his real one. It all began on September 27th, 1849. Poe was living in Richmond, Virginia. That morning, he took a boat ride to Baltimore. According to the Poe Museum, he was on his way to Philadelphia to do some editing. He never arrived. And there's no reliable information about anything that happened to him until six days later, an election day, when a stranger named Joseph Walker found Poe in a Baltimore gutter, half-conscious and in, quote, great distress. Poe wore a shabby outfit, so unlike his typical fine garb that many assumed they were someone else's clothes. He was taken to a hospital, where he remained delirious for days. At one point he called out for someone named Reynolds. Finally, on October 7th, he died. His last words, Lord help my poor soul. Poe's cause of death was vaguely reported as congestion of the brain. But there was no autopsy, and the death certificate was lost. Meanwhile, theories abound. Was Poe drunk, mugged, suffering from rabies, or maybe it was cooping, a practice whereby political candidates would have people abducted, drugged, and forced to vote, sometimes dressing them in different clothes, so they could vote multiple times. Poe's strange death got even stranger in the 1930s. That's when Baltimoreans first spotted a figure known as the Poe toaster. He'd appear late at night on Poe's birthday, a scarf obscuring his face, and toast the author's gravestone with a sip of cognac. The toaster appeared through 2009, Poe's 200th birthday, and hasn't been seen since.
0: So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. On the line is Kurt Bragunier. He is owner of Annabelle Lee Tavern. That is a Poe-themed bar in Baltimore where Poe is buried. First of all, Kurt, how do you make it a Poe-themed bar? Are there ravens everywhere? Yes,
8: well, my logo is a raven in a window. Of course. Uh, and inside is dark and romantic maroon walls. And I have parts of Poe's poems all over the walls. All
0: right, so there's not a giant razor pendulum or something swinging above the bar? There
8: is not. That might be going a little too far. We go towards toward the dark romantic side of Poe. All
0: right, well, you heard the history. What drink did you decide to make?
8: It's called October 7th, which is the day that Mr. Poe died. Of course. It is... Two parts, Drambouille, one part, Amontillado, on the rocks.
0: So very simple. This is great, though, because I've always wondered, Amontillado, of course, figures prominently in the short story, The Cask of Amontillado. Right. What is Amontillado?
8: It is a fortified wine.
0: So it's like a vermouth or something?
8: Uh, Yeah. For lack of a better reference, yes. It's not the best tasting fortified <laughs> wine out there, for sure.
0: <laughs> so it's an appropriately horrific drink to consume. A little
8: bit, yeah. And But the Drambouille has some sweetness to it, so the Drambouille takes the edge off the Amontillado.
0: One other thing, is it true you guys have a wake for Poe?
8: Yes, it's annual. I set up a little stage in front of our fireplace. We have a gentleman named David Keltz who is a Poe impersonator, and he does a short (laughs) program of like a short story and a poem and I, we like play a Beethoven Requiem, and we have lots of candles, and it's already decorated for Halloween, so it's oh, nice. definitely a great way to, to get into the Halloween season. But
0: how can you be a Poe impersonator? There was no recording technology back then.
8: Well, he does. <laughs> that's an excellent question.
9: <laughs>
0: So, Brendan, have a confession. Okay. I've watched pro football for years, never put it together until hearing this story that the Baltimore Ravens <laughs> are named after Poe's poem. Oh, yeah. They're the they most got gothic it. team in the NFL. You should know That's that. That's right. Now I imagine like a candlelit locker room with flocked <laughs> velvet wallpaper. That's right.
2: Joe, just, Joe Flacco with black fingernails. Sure. Smoking cloves. Listening
0: to Bauhaus. Uh, folks, head to our website for that drink recipe. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which a great musician DJs your dinner party. And
2: our guest is Pauline Black, frontwoman of the legendary UK ska band The Selector. Back in the 80s, they and groups like The Specials revived the genre with socially conscious lyrics and punk energy. The Selector's new album, Subculture, is out now. Here's Pauline with the soulful playlist.
3: Hi there, this is Pauline Black, lead singer of The Selector, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. (laughs) ¶¶ My first track is by somebody who I had no idea about until a couple of years ago. I was asked to narrate a program about this lovely lady. Up above my head! Up
9: up above my head! I hear music in the air! I hear music in the air!
3: Her name is Sister Rosetta Tharp, and the song I've chosen is Up Above My Head, I Hear music Music in the Air! Sister Rosetta Thorpe, she fabulously played guitar, I mean, as well as any man of the time in the 50s, I reckon, and she was big news here at one time. I think this is fairly often that this has happened, that a black artist will come over from America, will mean nothing in America at all, but will come over here and suddenly become super famous. People say, "Oh, well, how do you write hits? How you do? How do you do this? How do you do that?" You know, she says it all, and in, in the line, "Up above my head, I hear music in the air." That's where it is. You, all you'd have to do is just let it flow through you, and that is one woman who let it flow through her. That would get anybody in a good mood if they were sitting down to eat food. Up
7: above my head, Up above my head. I, hear the music. I hear music in the
9: air.
3: Second on my playlist is a soul singer, Jackie Wilson. And before I tell you what the actual song is, I did some shows with an artist called Eddie Floyd, who is famous for writing Knock on Wood. And uh, every morning he would regale everybody on the tour with stories, you know. And uh, the stories about Jackie Wilson were legion, none of which I can relate. Uh, <laughs> Your love. This kind of feeds into the whole Sister Rosetta Tharp thing. So I'm on a theme here, you see. It was up above my head. You hear music in the air. Well, I want to choose Jackie Wilson's Higher and Higher. I just love soul music. I mean, it was one of the very early ways that I was introduced to black American music. So, you know, when I went to school, everybody over here was listening to kind of surf sound or the Beach Boys. Being the only black kid in school, you needed a badge of honor. So so I was deeply into soul at that time. (laughs) To close out a party, this particular track was probably at the time one of the first reggae tracks that I ever heard on the radio. The artist is Desmond Decker and uh, the track is
7: Israelites.
3: I remember Desmond Decker telling me that he actually wrote Israelites within 10 minutes. He was just sitting in a park one day. I think he'd gone for a job or something like that and he wasn't sure whether he'd got it or not. And uh, the first kind of lyrics came into his, you know, get up in the morning, slave in for bread, sir. And he said, I just wrote these lyrics down. You know, I just tapped into something. And that was what I meant about Sister Rosetta Tharp. You just tap into it. Israelite. Among the uh, subcultures that listen to our music, you know, skinheads, punks, mods, rude boys, all of that, Desmond Decker remains king. I think that if I was going to play anything at a dinner party of The Selector, I would play something off our new album. It's called Walk the Walk. Anti racist and anti sexist themes run through all of our songs. And if it's the last track in the night, then uh, give them something to make them think on the journey home.
2: Dinner Party soundtrack from ska legend Pauline Black of The Selector. Their new album, Subculture, is in U.S. stores now. All right,
0: coming up, we have our guest of honor, hip-hop duo Run The Jewels. They tell us all about making music out of cat noises. When the Dinner Party Meowload nice. continues. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano. Welcome to the Dinner Party Download, the Arts and Leisure section of Public Radio. Later, Eat, Pray, Love author Elizabeth Gilbert answers your etiquette questions. But first, let's meet our guest of honor.
2: Guests of honor this week, of course, we have Killer Mike and LP, the hip-hop duo known as Run the Jewels, and they are adored by fans and critics alike for their menacing beats and dexterous wordplay. Since forming two years ago, they've played Madison Square Garden, the Coachella Music Festival, and they've released two acclaimed albums, neither of which could have prepared us for the one they dropped this week. Indeed. It's called Meow the Jewels, and it has the same rhymes as their last record, but the background beats and music are made entirely from cat noises. Genius. So, (laughs) let's do a before and after. Here's a clip of their non-feline track, Early.
10: It be feeling like the life that I'm living, man, I don't control. Every day I'm in a fight for myself. Could it be that my medicine's the evidence for to stop and frisk me when they roll around on patrol? And ask why you're here. I just tell them cause it is what it is. I live here and that what it is. Each time you gotta dime. I say, man, I'm trying to smoke and chill. Please don't lock me up in front of my kids And in front of my wife, man, I ain't got a gun and a knife. You do
2: this. Now if you have allergies, I need people to step away from their listening devices. Cause I'm gonna play them hourly. This is the same song with cat beats.
10: It be feeling like the life that I'm living, man, I don't control. Every day I'm in a fight for my soul. Could it be that my medicines are evidence of kids to stop and frisk me when they roll around on patrol? And ask why you're here. I just tell them because it is what it is. I live here and that what it is. You chime, you got a dime. I say, man, I'm trying to smoke and chill. Please don't lock me up in front of my keys. And in front of my wife, man, ain't got a <laughs> gun. <of> the
4: <laughs>
2: what, what, the, what the heck are you guys doing? Where Where? where did all the Jewels come from?
4: Um, the the The, the depths of hell.
2: Well, that could have had a role. Um, (laughs) I read that you guys made a fake list of promotional items that your fans could get if they bought your last album, Run the Jewels 2, in advance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the fake promos was you said you would remix your album with beats made entirely from cat sounds for $40,000. And you were joking, but then a bunch of your fans were like, no, we want this. Yeah, they started (laughs) Kickstarter. Exactly. They started Kickstarter to fund it. And yeah, then yeah. as I understand it, you spoke with them and then uh-huh. once they kind of agreed to give the proceeds to charity, you were like, all right, we'll, we'll do this.
4: Correct. We weren't comfortable with it. We were like, no, this is a joke. You know, we don't want anybody taking this seriously. We don't want anyone spending money on this. And also, we don't want to have to make this album. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we figured, um, we figured out a way that it could be cool. You know, we we realized that there was an opportunity to do something using the humor and the community of, 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 of the people who are supporting us and who are interested in it. To put some money towards a good cause. So once once we all were on the same page with that, and we and that it was a that it was a charity project, then you know then we got behind it. Can
2: you remind us uh, what the cause is, where the where the proceeds are going? Yeah.
4: Well, the forty thousand dollars that we were that we asked for the record was um, divided up already has been equally between the uh, families of Eric Garner and Michael Brown,
2: both of whom were killed by policemen in Staten Island and Ferguson, Missouri, respectively. Um, this juxtaposition of goofiness and seriousness is a defining trait of all of your music. And I'm curious, how do you guys think of these two forces coming together? On the one hand, having fun like here with a bunch of cat beats and also a serious message like the song we heard earlier
10: is about, um, a police shooting. You know, honestly, the best, sometimes it's just easiest that way. You know, we got to, we, if you want hard news that hurts, you can watch the news in the morning or afternoon. You know, if you want something that's just going to make you sad. But I think that comedians have done a great job at telling some really hard truths in a way that people can, you know, laugh at, laugh with one another and endure and push through the next day. And I think that our music um, follows a Carlin. It follows a, Bill a Hill, Bill Hicks. You know, it's, it's it's as honest and raw as a prior, you know. Mm. Um, and it has a level of depth to it because all humans do. You know, humans are, are you know, emotionally, man, it goes deep. And I think that we just are unafraid to acknowledge it in the same spectrum of saying something incredibly machismo and stupid, you know? Hmm. It makes me making music easier, you know? Yeah. You don't, a, a you don't have to marry yourself to a character you build. Right. There's a magic to being able
4: to be everything that you are on a record. Yeah.
2: Another th- part of this is, you know, I think people take heart In the way that you guys from two different backgrounds mesh, you know, L, you're from Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Uh, For our radio audience, you're you're a white kid from Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and Mike, you are a black kid from Atlanta. Atlanta, yeah. And you and you guys mesh, and uh, you know, there's clearly such a creative energy and friendship between you two. It comes across in your music. I imagine that people look to you as role models, and I'm wondering how that feels.
10: As long as you understand, role models are going to do stupid stuff and mess up, and (laughs) Really what makes you a role model is being able to sit back down and be like, you know what? I messed up. That's why I respect, you know, my, my grandparents because they, you know, when they were raising us, they said, hey, I shot at your grandfather when we were younger because he came home with his underwear on backwards, you know,
8: <laughs> and maybe I wouldn't
10: shoot at him again. But, you know, it's, it's just that, you know, you have to understand that role models are not superheroes. We're, we're not perfect. But we're very aware that there's something symbolic and something real that can get
4: passed on from that, and I think that mm. there's there's not a whole lot, it's not contrived, there's, there's nothing that we really have to say about it. There's something inarguable and unstoppable about love and friendship, and when that's there and when people can see that that's genuine, it knocks away and, and, and pacifies a lot of the complications and the arguments that we all tend to tend to kind mm. of throw about at
10: each other because we don't understand each other. You was preaching, then, boy. Thank you. Mm. Like that's as close <laughs> yes. I've heard like to a white person just catching the Holy Ghost. You know, I wasn't <laughs> that excited. <laughs> no, it was good. It meant something to me. It did. Thank you. It means a lot to me. Let me say, Amen. All right. Well,
2: I need you to both preach a little more because we have two standard questions we ask our guests, and the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked?
10: You, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot access what we think of other rappers or the current state of hip hop. Exactly. Don't
4: ask us about the state of hip-hop. Hip-hop isn't your weird cousin that's, been, <laughs> that's addicted to drugs that don't you have to check you. up on every once in a while. Exactly. I don't know what the state of hip-hop is. <laughs> I just make rap records. I'm not a sociologist.
2: Our second question is, uh, tell us something we don't know, and this is something that you guys haven't shared in an interview before, or it could just be an interesting piece of trivia about the world.
4: Uh, you don't know whether or not there's a God.
2: <laughs> nah, that's mm. a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> so don't All try right. and tell me either way. All right, but wait, uh, Mike, am I wrong? Are you? Are you religious? No.
10: Uh, what, what you? No. Yeah. What you have? What you see me doing is I, do, I oftentimes my music I talk about morality and and stuff like that, and I use the Bible and stuff like that as a reference because I was raised in a Christian household and I studied religion in college, but I'm probably the most unreligious guy that <laughs> you'll know. I would be the guy who probably say it's nothing after we got it. It's over. Mike is pretty much the atheist of the crew. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, pretty much, I'm pretty much the guy who actually might believe in God. But my aunt's gonna call me. You just got me cursed out. Thank you very much. My aunt's gonna call me. <laughs> what do you mean? Your grandma rolling over in a grave. You don't believe in Jesus. I'm grandma, like you're going... not gonna
4: listen to what that yeah, white man said about it's,
10: me. It's exactly the line I'm going with. Like, you let them white people... You, I'm going straight yeah, man. to it. I love Al,
4: <laughs> but he's a devil.
0: <laughs> so nice move, Brendan. You just tore Killer Mike's family apart.
2: <laughs> Sorry, Killer Mike's aunt. Uh,
0: you should apologize. Uh, and in
2: case you think I edited your nephew's comments, I encourage you and our audience to head to dinnerpartydownload.org where you can hear our whole conversation. It's worth checking out. They talk about the origins of their name, their partnership, and of course, herding cats.
9: And now, time to eavesdrop.
0: Sloan Crosley's funny confessional essay collection, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, was nominated for a Thurber Prize. Her follow-up was a New York Times bestseller. Her first novel is out this week. Today, we overhear an excerpt.
1: Hello, my name is Sloane Crosley, and my new book is called The Clasp, and it centers around three friends who reunite at a wedding uh, when they're adults, Nathaniel, Victor, and Kezia. But before we get to that, we meet all three of our main characters, and the passage I'm going to read today is from the introduction to Nathaniel. The morning haze had yet to burn off It was the hour at which Los Angeles feels most like San Francisco. Nathaniel went for a run around the reservoir, kicking up sand, watching women in the dog park. A month ago, after years of extolling the health benefits of a life in L.A., something inside his body had turned on him. He felt fatigued no matter how much he slept or how much hot yoga he did. Sometimes he experienced shortness of breath just walking across a studio lot. He was about to turn 30, not 50, So he went to a nutritionist in Inglewood, who told him to incorporate more zinc into his diet and drink more water. Then he went to an energy healer, who told him more or less the same thing, but tacked on some meditative breathing exercises. Then he went to a kinesiologist, who suggested that he keep both legs elevated above his heart whenever possible, especially when in the shower. Even when in the shower, he asked? No, said the kinesiologist. Especially. But then one day, he was sitting at home, legs up, trying to work, and his vision blurred. The page of dialogue he had just written transformed into impenetrable chunks of black squiggle. His heart started racing like a hummingbird's. That's what he told the cardiologist, who told him that if that were true, he'd be dead. Super dead, the cardiologist clarified. 1,200 beats per minute. Then the cardiologist told him that a whale beat would also be cause for concern. Six beats per minute and that giraffes have a second heart in their necks. Apparently, he was leaning toward veterinary medicine before switching to humans. The cardiologist conducted the usual tests for abnormalities. At long last, his second electrocardiogram came back, bearing the gift of a diagnosis. For a guy in the prime of his life, you have an abnormally small heart, said the cardiologist. Do you exercise? He thought it was pretty clear that he did still, the doctor told him that he needed to get his heart rate up more often. This doctor had chosen the most symbolic specialty in all the medical profession. He'd probably had it with otherwise intelligent people conflating medicine and symbolism. Nathaniel was no different. He knew that if he had received the opposite diagnosis, that of a swelled heart bursting out of his chest, he would have told anyone who would listen. He would have used it to gain access to the sympathies and beds of women especially. Not that he needed the assistance, but man, what a deal-sealer. He ran faster up the hill. No matter how fast he ran, his diagnosis felt more like a verdict. He couldn't escape the symbolism. He had not loved a member of the opposite sex in approximately ever. Maybe he never would. He stood next to the refrigerator, panting while his housemate, Percy, went back and forth from the kitchen with a plate of eggs. "'When do you leave again?' Percy asked. "'Tomorrow.' "'And whose wedding is this?' "'You don't know her,' Nathaniel said. "'Girl from college.' "'Nonsense,' he said. "'I know everyone, old man.' Percy went back to watching a movie in the living room. "'Old man?' Nathaniel realized that, in addition to the heavy panting, he had been touching his lower back. And so he stopped.
0: Sloane Crosley, her novel The Clasp, comes out this week. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download, coming to you from the heart of American public media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So Brendan, back around the turn of the century, you, you may know I wrote for TV. And mm-hmm. every comedy writer I knew dreamed of a gig on the mega-hit sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. This is the part of the show there's, where we talk about food. Well, here's why they wanted that gig. <laughs> it makes sense. The creator of the show, Phil Rosenthal, fed his staff uh-huh. better than anybody in show business. Okay. It was legendary. Like, the Writers Guild magazine did a cover story about the food on that set. These mm. days, Phil invests in restaurants from chefs like Mario Batali, and now he hosts a food travel show on PBS. It's called I'll Have what Phil's having so I met him for lunch at Hollywood's farmers market food court to talk about it but first I asked why he fed his TV staff so well
5: I felt like if you're gonna have your own show and that was the first show I ever had right the first question you ask yourself is how are you going to be are you gonna try to be tough or are you gonna try to be a taskmaster or you're gonna try to be and I thought because I'd been on other shows how about we just try to be nice what? Yeah, a novel idea. So be nice, and then the other thing you can do to show that you care about people is you make the food, the craft service, very good. Because when you think about it, we've all been to the craft service table and there's crap on there. There's potato chips and junk. And, and for those who don't know, this is the, kind of the snack table that's out 24 hours
0: a day on a right. TV or movie set.
5: Right. And if you're on the crew or in the cast or a writer, you walk over there out of boredom, usually, to grab whatever, stuff your face and keep going with your day. Sometimes that's your only meal of the day because you're so busy and that's it. But what if you went over there and there was deli flown in from New York once in a while or cinnamon buns from Chicago. Two strangers approach the table and hear something fantastic and they take a bite and they go, holy, did you have this? Yes, and right away we're talking and it's about something nice. And I would say after the writing and the acting, the food's the most important thing. What was actually out there? Give us an example of... Uh, the things I just described were there. Once a year, we had stone crab claws from Florida. We'd put newspaper on the writer's uh, table and hammers from the set, from
0: the crew, and we'd bang open these things and had a party. But I can, the first thing that came to mind when I heard about the kind of smorgasbords that you had out yeah. all the time is, didn't everybody just then lie around napping most of the day? No, we had work to do. But what did happen was, I got
5: fat. We're in that room all day. We call it the veal pen. You know, we're not getting out. We're there. we stuck. The only sunshine coming in is the menu, and you can order whatever you want. And
0: so we did. All right. Let's, let's move on to why food became so important to you. On, on your show, yes. you actually talk about how you did not grow up in a particularly culinarily fantastic household.
5: No, I was... Uh, my mother once made um, matzah lasagna. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> Instead of sheets of pasta, sheets of matzah. It was kind of like a cardboard Napoleon.
0: Even the cat wouldn't eat it. I'm half Jewish and half Italian, so yes. you would think that that would That's give me- That's a perfect recipe for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I still don't think it sounds that know, great. I don't think so. I think it, She got it out of an
5: anti-Semitic cookbook, I think. It was a horrible upbringing. So, so you, how did you become a foodie? You know, I, you talk to chefs, like famous chefs, like Alice Waters will tell you her mother was not a great cook. And so, if you hit at the certain age, at the right age, like when you discover great music that becomes your music for life, food became my music, because when I got out of that house, I was like a man coming out of the desert. I never had garlic! Oh no. I never I know I was in college before. I was eating a bowl of pasta and going, this is fantastic. I mean it was a cheap little place and my friends are going, what's so fantastic? It's good, but what like I pinned it down. What are these little white things? Do you know how fantastic that is if you've never had it? That's why the whole point of the show is to get out in the world, travel. Experience things, food, and a sense of humor is my way of connecting with people.
0: So let's ask, what was yeah. your favorite uh, on this show? For, yeah. uh, you go to basically everywhere.
5: Yeah. Uh, what was your favorite I was city? Say, I'm I'm not just saying this because you're half Italian, but Italy wins. I mean, I guess I shouldn't have even asked you that question because it's so obvious. It's just the greatest. You're eating the most delicious thing you ever had. You're looking at the most beautiful scenery you ever had, and you're getting
0: hugged. <laughs> Now, that being said, though, you know, everybody grows up, I think, to some extent, with Italian food, pizza, and pasta. Did you have something there that actually blew your mind that you'd never had before? Yes.
5: I'm going to tell you. I just went to Milan for the first time. I got back this week. This is why I spoke at the uh, World's Fair, which is all food, all about food. So I went with Norman Lear, and we spoke about food in entertainment. How's that for a scam? Getting to go and do that. I hate you a little. Yes. uh, Everyone hates me a little bit. But I had a dish, saffron risotto. With sea urchin. Blew the top of my head off. It was so delicious.
0: You actually, in the Tokyo episode, you have sea urchin. You've said that you eat a lot of sea urchin in sushi, but you still managed to get your mind blown having it in pasta. I never had it like this. In this season, I'm assuming that you are hoping for more than one season of this. Where haven't you gone that you would like to go?
5: I'm God, listen, it's a big world out there. I did six episodes Paris, Barcelona, Florence, and Umbria, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Los Angeles, which I consider to be the great food city in America at the moment. And there's another point to the Los Angeles episode, which is I know everybody can't travel. You can travel in your own town. You can have a dish at a restaurant in a neighborhood that you're afraid to go to. And maybe if we'd like that Peruvian dish, we start to taste another one. And before you know it, you're talking to the owner. And before you know it, I love a Peruvian guy. And
0: before I know it, I'm planning a trip to Peru. Rosenthal. His show, I'll Have What Phil's Having, airs Monday nights on PBS. In it, he travels wherever he wants and eats delicious food. He told me the show's original title was Lucky Bastard.
2: All right. We'll be back with etiquette advice from Eat, Pray, Love author Elizabeth Gilbert. She'll reprimand Rico for cursing just then when The Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations.
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, the great graphic novelist
9: Adrian Tomina tells us how to determine if one of his stories is autobiographical. Any of the ones with schlubby, hairy, confused dads are probably the ones that are closest to me. <laughs> there you go. It's easy. See, my novel would probably feature a delightful, dapper
0: gentleman. Mm, who is delusional, I'm guessing. Yours would be a jealous guy. And speaking of humble modesty, <laughs> sir, it's time to learn some manners.
2: Yes, each week you send in your etiquette questions, and here to answer them this time around is writer Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth began her career writing magazine pieces for the likes of GQ and the New York Times, and then went on to write several well-received books, including The Last American Man, which was nominated for a National Book Award. And then she wrote a memoir about her globe-trotting journey of self-discovery called Eat, Pray, Love. It was a smash hit that sold 10 million copies and counting. Her latest nonfiction book is called Big Magic. It contains her advice for what she calls creative living beyond fear, and Elizabeth, welcome back to the show. Yay! Thank you.
11: It's wonderful. to be- There you yay. go. I was going to say Rico. Can we get a yay? This is the yay moment. <laughs> you know, that's not even him. He just has a button that he pushes. It's, it's <laughs> does. just a. We're basically we've taken yeah.
2: on all the attributes of FM radio in the eighties. <laughs> oh my mm-hmm. god! Yeah, it's going to be car noises and sirens. And- We're bringing yeah, it all exactly. back,
0: Elizabeth, just for you. But
2: I want to talk to you about creative living, yes. which is the term you use in this book. Right? Can you explain how
11: you conceive of this term? I or? can. My definition of creative living is any life where you consistently make. your decisions based on curiosity rather than fear because i think that creativity and fear are conjoined twins and Mm. anytime you try to do something creative which will push you into a realm with an unknown outcome no matter how small it is you can be certain that your fear is going to be on alert because it doesn't like it when you do things with unknown outcomes and it's going to try to stop you and so you have to kind of figure out how to cope with that um, because your choices are you know, listen to the fear and have a very small and probably frustrated life. Or mm-hmm. or figure out a way around it to have a more interesting, curiosity-driven, inquisitive life, which is, I think, what we all really want
0: for ourselves. You have gone from being a journalist and a fiction writer to someone that some fans almost want to model their lives after. There's, you know, a boom of people going to Bali in the wake of Eat, Pray, Love, for instance. Yeah. And now you're somebody that they would want to buy an advice book from. When did you realize that was happening and how did you become comfortable with that idea? I
11: th- Well, it happened after e Pray Love, which was accidentally a self-help book. This book is, by the way, <laughs> totally one hundred percent a self-help book, which yeah. is um <laughs> I think, I think it's, is... it's like the most punk rock thing you can do is to write the least respected form of literature um, <laughs> and totally destroy any chance that you have to be taken seriously. But uh, yeah, I mean, e Pray love for me was, you know, it was a travel memoir, and it was a lot of other things, but people certainly ended up using it. In their own lives as a self-help book. And I felt really uncomfortable about that for a long time and tried to put it off and tried to make snarky jokes about how it wasn't true. And I like just so uncomfortable that I would have to shift, shift it off in a way until I realized what a total jerk that was making me (laughs) act like. And I thought they don't need your irony. They don't need your, um, they don't need your insecurity and your sense of low self-worth about this. They just need you to say, thank you. I'm really glad you read the book and it meant something to you. So just shut up and just say that
0: but that must be a huge burden though as well though because i'm sure there are people who say you know i want to quit my day job and be just like you and it's really difficult to be just like anybody it's virtually impossible to be just like (laughs)
11: anybody um but for me i guess at this moment i feel like if i have an audience and people want me to give them advice the only thing i feel super qualified to give advice about is creativity because it's the one Mm -hmm. thing that I can truly say I've spent my entire life engaged with and in in a way that hasn't been tormented. And so I feel like, okay, well, if you want to hear me talk about something, why don't we talk about this thing? And if it's helpful to you, here's what I think, including please, please, please don't quit your day job um, (laughs) without a backup plan. Um, Please. I didn't quit my day jobs for my first three books and all of them were published by major publishing houses. And I still had day jobs on the side because I never wanted to burden my creativity with the responsibility of paying for my life because Mm. I loved my creativity too much to ask it to do that.
2: Well, that's the sort of advice we want you to continue to give (laughs) when we turn to our listeners etiquette questions. You ready for these? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. This first question comes from (laughs) Carolyn or Caroline in Beverly Hills, California. Dear Liz, a friend of mine asked me to speak at an event she was running, and I said yes. I never heard from her about it again and just saw on Instagram that the event was yesterday. I now feel awkward about seeing her again, but curious as to why she gave me the cold shoulder. Should I say something? That's terrible. You know, the TED conference did that same thing to me. Really?
11: No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, Well, as a passive-aggressive person who doesn't know how to handle conflict, I would say what you do, go to her house while she's sleeping, Mm. and then just... While she's asleep, stand at the foot of her bed and recite the speech that you were planning on giving. That's aggressive. That That's not <laughs> passive <laughs> aggressive. At all
2: about that. Yeah, oh I gosh. think passive aggressive would be like liking <laughs> the Instagram photo <laughs> oh. and leaving comments <laughs> oh, like, "Oh, cool." Oh, I wow. would have loved
11: to have been at an event yeah, like that. Yeah, I would have loved to have come to an event like this. <laughs> I guess there's, you know, the, the really direct way would be to just say, "Wow, well, I'm a little confused because sure. I thought you were," mm. but I would never, I would never do that because I'd be too afraid to do that. I would say just move to another country. That's what I oh do whenever goodness. I'm in an awkward okay. social situation. <laughs> Either break into her
2: house or move to another country. Two very practical pieces of advice. You see why? You know? Do you
11: see why people see me as a girl? Exactly. <laughs> can you also maybe assume that there was a misstep? That maybe there was a phone call that you didn't get or an email that she thinks mm. that you blew her off? That maybe it's I'm not like a, a benefit
0: of the doubt guy. But it, but I think you got a way forward there if you act as though the person maybe missed something and maybe you can send an email saying, Hey, did you get this? Next time, I'd love to be considered.
2: Well, there there we go. Caroline, you have several so approaches right there. So threads of advice. Attack,
0: run away, or yeah. assume the best. Here's something from Robert in Chicago. Robert asks, if you see a fellow American in a foreign land acting disrespectfully to local customs, should you say something to him or her? I feel like I wouldn't police this behavior at home, but somehow abroad it bugs me. Like, you're making us all look bad. Robert, I feel you.
11: Look, I'm married to a guy who thinks he is the policeman of the entire world, and it is terribly anxiety-producing for me to go in public spaces with him where Mm. he feels the need to correct other human beings on their behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, My feeling being a wasp <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> is that um, you know Make no, a gin and no confrontation is good confrontation <laughs> um, and if you're and if you're abroad and their behavior is bothering you then the great thing is that you can get on a
0: train and go to another city
2: you're abroad probably to escape a little bit of this exactly and
0: so I don't think it's your time to be the world policeman at that point but it I is true agree. though then, then it ends up coming back to bite you though if people start developing a terrible attitude towards Americans did you just but, say I mean,
10: if, if yeah,
2: start... <laughs> I mean
0: come on the, that, that train has left the station yeah, but I think getting yeah. into a confrontation
2: with an American that's exactly the uh, that's only going to make it worse.
11: Unless you can totally like Bruce Willis it like just like be the enforcer and like go double down American on them and like totally be the cop of the world.
2: There you go Robert in Chicago you have, you have several options including Bruce Willising it. Yes, that's a verb. <laughs> this next question comes from Beth in Seattle, Washington and Beth writes, if you write something based on a person and then someone asks you if your fictional character is kind of sort of based on that person. Mm-hmm. Can you demur? I want to maintain the
11: mystery. Oh, I think Beth just told us she does write things about I think about she people. does write things about people. My move with this has always been to say, well, what do you think? Was there anybody in the book who you felt like kind of reminded you of you? Because my experience is oftentimes it is true that there is somebody in the book based on that person, but it's not who they think. And mm. then let them choose who they think it is. Mm. And if it's a positive character, say, of course, I've based it on you. And if it's a negative character, then you say, why, w- why would you think that was you?
2: Because uh-huh. I'm a borderline <laughs>
0: alcoholic who gets mad at people.
11: And you spelled my name backwards <laughs> yeah, and exactly. made the character
0: out of it. Who is this nadnerb? Wow.
11: <laughs> oh. uh, Beth,
0: there's your answer. And Elizabeth Gilbert, we are out of time. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave.
11: Oh, my, my very great pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me back, you guys.
2: Elizabeth Gilbert, her new book,
0: Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear, is out now. You can read it when you're being passive-aggressive and or using travel to avoid confrontation. And if you have an etiquette question,
2: send it on a digital trip straight to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact.
0: If you read The New Yorker, you've likely seen the work of my guest Adrian Tomina. His clean-lined illustrations have graced the covers of several issues of that magazine, as well as album covers by bands like The Eels, but he is also considered one of America's great graphic novelists. In his acclaimed comic book, Optic Nerve, which he started publishing as a teenager, he tells alternately funny and melancholy stories of everyday people struggling with their small, strange lives. His new collection, Killing and Dying, made Publishers Weekly's list of the most anticipated books of the fall. It consists of six short graphic tales with characters ranging from a stuttering teenage comedian to a Japanese mother reconciling with her estranged husband in America. Adrian is himself Japanese-American. And, sir, it's an honor to have you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for being here. You've said uh, that you often write a story, and then only later you realize that it's semi-autobiographical. Right. Which of these six stories ended up being the most personal for you in retrospect?
9: Oh, in retrospect, I would say uh, any of the ones with schlubby, hairy, confused dads (laughs) are probably the ones that are closest to me. (laughs) Um, well, I, started, I, I started the book just before uh, we found out that my wife was pregnant with our first kid. Oh. And the circumstances of my life just kind of permeated the whole book, even in, in, in weird ways that I didn't expect, even though it's a book of fictional stories. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, what's interesting is that when I think of the stories featuring schlubby <laughs>
0: men, <laughs> they are not about necessarily having kids. There's the one called Sculpture. Right. And uh, and the title story, actually, Killing and Dying, kind of features a dad. But they're both of those are about characters who want to do something artistic, but then kind of learn they actually aren't very good at it. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Is that something that <laughs> was brought up by,
9: by your wife becoming pregnant? Well, you know, I, I suddenly was spending a lot of my time at home with the baby, and my wife was actually pursuing her uh, Ph.D. at the time and writing her dissertation. So the house was just a little chaotic and I've always worked from home. And so just even finding the quietness to work on the book a little bit was becoming more and more of a struggle. And so I thought I was just inventing these uh, completely fictional stories and they ended up being about dads who didn't know what they were doing or uh, cut-rate artists who thought they had some promise and were about to give it all up and just get a respectable job. So was the idea that you were worried about whether you could even
0: be an artist under those circumstances or that, you know, suddenly you were wondering whether you were enough of an artist
9: to to try to keep making it work? Oh, well, I've always had that, am I really an artist (laughs) dilemma rattling around in my brain. Usually when I'm actually trying to work, But, yeah, it kind of brought it into a greater level of clarity when you're thinking about bills. And and it's hard, too, because drawing comics was a hobby of mine that somehow very slowly morphed into a career. And it suddenly became more clear than ever that it was a real job at that point. It, It makes me think about the
0: letters page, actually, of your regular comic book, Optic Nerve. Right. Where you often include letters from readers who are very critical of you. And I, oh, yeah. I used to think that that was kind of a brilliant move to show how jerky they were being. You kind of turn the mirror on them. It's like, look at how hypercritical you people are. But I wonder if maybe you, you, it was because you were actually taking that criticism
9: to heart. Oh, it's both of those things for sure. I've also been told by other cartoonists and and friends of mine that the letters page is actually their favorite part of the comic, and so it was sort of one of those traditions that kept growing, and I could never quite give up. That's interesting. Why do you think that other artists love it so much? Probably because on some level they agree with all the criticisms and they love seeing someone else (laughs) say it. Or maybe that they like seeing, that. oh, thank God, other people get these letters as well, not just me. Yeah, it could be, but to go back to your question, it it has been useful to me to, to... take that criticism to heart. What is a change that you've made based on what other people have said? I think one of the easy ones to point to is just the idea of forcing myself to look up from, from my navel, as, as they might say. You know, there was a lot of self-reflection and I had a habit of making characters that kind of looked like me. And <laughs> Once I got the sense that people had had enough of that, you it really, on. yeah, it opened me up. Just opening myself up to different kinds of characters and different kinds of stories was really useful to me, I think. The stories that, that aren't autobiographical still seem very grounded in reality, though. And
0: often the twists in them seem so unusual that I wonder if they aren't drawn from real life, perhaps not yours, but from others. Are they?
9: I guess it depends on the story in question. Well, let me, I'll give you an
0: example. Sure. The, the last story in this collection, Intruders, is about a guy who happens to come into possession of the keys to his old apartment right. from years ago and just starts creepily sneaking into the apartment and, and hanging out while the new owner is away. How, where did that come from? How?
9: Okay, well, I'll tell you a little bit about it, but at, at the same time, I am a little bit hesitant to decode all the stories. Sure. But in the case of Intruders, it really had its its roots in this period of, of my life when I was making a very slow, gradual move from California to New York, and uh, I was sort of going back and forth between the apartments, and it sort of felt like I was living these parallel lives that would almost get placed on hold while I was away, and then I'd come back and the same newspaper that I was reading right before I left last time was still sitting there on the coffee table. Uh, Eerie. Yeah, I think that was probably the very start of it. You know, most of these stories, even short ones like Intruders, had a long gestation process. So, like, the actual drawing of it didn't take long, but they sort of rattled around in my brain for a long time. And I think that really is where the real work happens for me, is just standing around on the playground watching my kid, and I'm thinking, all right, no, that how am I gonna solve that part of the story? Because it really sucks right now. And, <laughs> and then, you know, I have to snap out of it and go climb on some monkey bars for a few minutes or something. But although this does bring up my last question, which is You know, if these stories are gestating while you're
0: watching your kids play on the monkey bars, where does the melancholy of these stories come from? I mean, it sounds like that's a a a pretty happy situation. You've got a pretty happy life.
9: It is. It's great and better than ever now, really. Um, I don't sit down and think the tone that I'm going for is melancholy. In fact, I was really trying to do a lot more humor than before with this book. And then somehow my... (laughs) <laughs> Dark cloud of a personality uh, still pervades everything, and I, I hope the tone of this book will, will sort of be taken as a strange mix of that melancholy quality with with comedy, because that really is something that you're reminded of all the time when you have little kids. I've got I've got a six year old and a almost a one year old now, so oh, you kind of have these extremes of the human experience on a minute to minute basis. <laughs>
0: Adrian Tomina, his new collection of graphic stories is called Killing and Dying. It hits bookstores October 6th. And folks,
2: that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Before we bid you adieu, we need to thank some folks. Jackson Musker is our producer. Nina Patek is our associate producer. Christina Lopez is our
0: associate digital producer. All of them are fantastic, agreed. also fantastic. Jeff Peters, who helped engineer our show, and Larissa Anderson, our executive producer, not fantastic at all. Hatred, war, and loneliness and no, now that's why we fired them. Mm-hmm. And now, before we leave you, it's time for one for the road. A song to enjoy on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Danish psych band Döngjen have a new album out this week. It's
2: entitled Alles Sock, which Google tells me means everyone's thing. Hmm. It's definitely been our thing the past couple of days. Here's a track from it called Akt Diet. Bon appétit.
11: <laughs>
0: Thanks for attending the dinner party. Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nunham. See you next time. Uh, the, hey, great show, man. You, you, hey, you just kind of interrupted me, and oh, um, yeah. Uh, I feel like you sh- you ought to. Uh, Do you, oh, it's okay. Do you want
2: me to apologize?
0: I'm moving to Portugal. <laughs>